Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Uh, we got some, some ground to cover this morning. Uh, the intent is to put a nice bow on Adam um, and, and the, the Adam's creation, um, tie that in a little bit with some of the Pauline theology, uh, and then next week uh, I'll be out of town. Greg Knight will be uh, covering a, a class on uh, covenants, I believe, um, and then in two weeks we'll be back looking at Cain. Um, so that's the intent. So we've got a little bit of ground to cover, uh, but I'm excited for, for our class this morning. Uh, we're going to attempt to let the Bible speak for itself. We're going to attempt to use the Old Testament words uh, or Old Testament uh, symbols, if you will, the way the Old Testament uses them. This is one that we looked at last week with the serpent. It's so easy to read New Testament theology, um, Satan, into the serpent, uh, which we see and understand that Satan is embodied in that serpent, but that would have been foreign, if you will, to the Old Testament readers. Uh, we want to attempt to, to read the Bible with an objective open mind, uh, with humility, uh, to allow the text to read out exegesis. And we also need to understand that it was written to us, and not, or written for us, excuse me, but not necessarily to us. Uh, last week, uh, we talked also a little bit about the difference between uh, the way that the, the Israelite history was put together. When we look at history, we want to see that bottom picture of like uh, a very scientific perspective through like the Hubble telescope lens. Um, but in reality, the, the Israelites looked at history more of a, a Van Gogh's starry night. They still show the same thing, but there's some differences associated with those. Uh, the conclusion of my uh, study is, I don't know how God did everything. Um, we have a lot of different glimpses, um, some insight, but there's still a ton of speculation when it comes to uh, the Bible and when it comes to the Old Testament especially. Uh, at the end of it all, though, we need to fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So now shifting gears, as we begin our class, we're going to look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, and we're going to use it to, uh, to uh, again, go into an overview of where we're at so far before we finish up Genesis chapter 3 this morning. The 103rd Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our, your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteous and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteous to children's children." 
to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What do you think David, or David is trying to get across here in this psalm? Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. And there's some things specifically that he calls out that we'll look at um, today. But let's review where we're at so far before we jump into chapter 3. As we look through uh, presenting, uh, I just messed up my wording right there. I was trying to write two words at once. We have, uh, throughout Genesis, chapter 1 opens with a very chaotic scene. A very chaotic scene. And then something changes in chapter 1. What happens in chapter 1? God speaks. And when God speaks, what gets introduced? Order. When God speaks, there is order introduced. So God makes order out of chaos. In the conclusion of that first week, what happens? Once God has established order in the cosmos, that was the word I was starting to write, in the cosmos, once God has established order, what does he do? He rests. And we looked a couple weeks ago that that concept of rest could also mean he takes up his dwelling. So God institutes order and he dwells within the order. Then we shift gears to chapter 2 and we see a similar picture yet different. Oh, let me back up. There's one significant thing in this first account. What is so significant? He goes through and creates everything, but there's one creation that's special, one thing that he made that's special. And what is that one special thing? Man. And what makes man special? He's made in the image of God. So there's something special here. Man is in God's image. And then we shift gears to chapter 2. And chapter 2 takes a look, and it's also introducing the, this chaotic realm. This chaotic world. But we see in chapter 2 that that word is taught, or world that is more a terrestrial. I did not spell that right. Um, but it's more of a terrestrial focus. So we see chaos introduced here. How do we know that chaos is introduced at the beginning of chapter 2? How does he set the stage uh, for this account? Chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And so from an agricultural standpoint, from an agricultural viewpoint, this is chaos because it's a period of time when there's no plants in the field. It hasn't even rained yet. How can you grow crops without rain? There's chaos here. But instead of, or we're going to see this chaos go into order. But what is different about this account? The first one, God spoke, and that is what brought order. What happens here? Who is to bring order to this terrestrial world? Man. Man is. So man, who is made in God's image, is the one that's instituting order here. And at the conclusion of chapter 2, did man uh, help facilitate order? He, he's allowed to participate in it. God still has a huge hand, but he's invited another person or another entity into this order-making process. And we know that there is order at the end of chapter 2 because how does chapter 2 end? They were naked and what? Unashamed. Naked and unashamed. 
Now, this was a huge task. How do, what, what, what was the man tasked with? What did God tell him to do in the garden? To care for it. So this man was tasked to work and keep the garden. And that was a big task. How do we know that that was a big job? Yeah, Tom says, I've done it. If you've ever cared for a garden, you know it's a big job. God acknowledged that this was a big job. And he said that Adam needs what to accomplish his job? He needs help. So what did God do? Adam needed help. And what did that help come in? It came in the form of woman. And what was the significance that, uh, that the Genesis account is showing us about this woman? This woman came from Adam. This woman is Adam's other half, his ontological equal. So now let's take a step back uh, from Genesis real quick. In that culture, outside of the Israelite context, how were women viewed? Lesser than. Uh, even within the Israelite context, the women were lesser than, but they were less lesser than than the outside culture. What does Moses tell us here in chapter 2? This woman is the man's what? It's his equal. All right, so we don't see this today, but that was huge, huge back then. To say that this woman came from Adam, that this woman is Adam's other half, that's a big deal. To say that Adam cannot function correctly without this woman, that is huge from that cultural standpoint. And so then we also see this aside at the end of chapter 2, that so shall a man leave his family and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they have an equal but a, a kind of a completeness associated with this. Does that make sense? So now at the end of this, we see, at the end of these accounts, we see that there is um, order. There's order in God's dwelling place. We see that man has been invited to participate. And how do we know that man has been invited to participate? God told him to take care of it. God could have done all of this himself and put everything, done everything, but he says, no, Adam, this man who is made in my image, you work it, you keep it. We also see that this man was able, what were the first commands? Right here. There were some commands that were thrown in place. What were they? He was able to eat of how many trees? All of them except one. All of them except one. So, Tom, how easy, once the trees have been grown up and established, uh, how easy is it to eat from a tree versus eat from the ground? A lot easier, right? So man was able to eat uh, without, how did I write this? Without working the field. And that phrase will come up again. And man and woman, based off, and this is all based off of the term work and keep, man and woman are priestly, representatives. Okay. God gave commands. My handwriting has to get lower to the board. My handwriting gets progressively worse. So God gave these commands. And these commands were, one, eat of all the tree, eat of any tree. And then the second one is, do not eat of what tree specifically? Tree of knowledge, good, and evil. All right. So that's kind of setting the framework on where we're at today. And the question as we're going to go through, um, we'll, we'll dig in and we'll look specifically 
as what was so good about the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. So we see, uh, what was that, Carolyn? What did you say? It would make them like God. I would say, so we see something, something weird happens here. In chapter 3, as we transition, we have this order complex. And then something weird happens. What happens? What happens in chapter 3 that throws a wrench in everything? So we see this guy show up on the scene. And what is this guy referred to as in chapter 3? The serpent. We're going to see this serpent again. And the serpent tells Eve, excuse me, we don't have her name yet. The serpent tells the woman what? Chapter 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So what is the serpent interjecting into this? A lie. And a lie to create what? A lie to create doubt. And he's going to use this as a catalyst for something. What do you think this catalyst is for? A catalyst for, at the end of chapter 3, or throughout the, the story of chapter 3, we saw here that there was some order established by they were naked and unashamed. After this doubt, after sin entered the world, how are they described? Naked and afraid, right? Just like the Discovery Channel uh, TV show. Um, but there's some chaos introduced. So we're going to see that the serpent reintroduces chaos into the system. And we're going to see that by the end of chapter 3. Because he's creating doubt. He's creating doubt. Did God really say? So God's commands were to not eat of that tree. So what specifically was good about... We'll come back to that side in a minute. Let's go back to that question. What was good about the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Tom, what did you have earlier? Okay, pleasant to the eyes. If you look at chapter 3, verse 6, we're going to see, so when the woman saw that the tree was one, what, what do we see here? Good for food, a delight to the eyes, and what's the third one? Okay, desire to make one wise. Why is this here? When we see the fruit of a tree, can we see that it's good for food? Yeah. Can we see that some fruit is more appealing, more delightful to our eyes? But when we see fruit, can we see that it makes us wise? No. So why, why is this here? Choice. And what is it associated with? What is specific? So this is the fruit of what tree? It's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see that if we eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, what will we obtain? We'll obtain food. We'll obtain some delight to the eyes. What else will we obtain? Wisdom. Why did God command us not to, why did God command the man and the woman to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because some knowledge is heavy. How? Okay, and this is a, a stepping away from Genesis. How do we obtain wisdom versus knowledge? Life experiences. You can give someone knowledge, right? Can you give someone wisdom? I can take knowledge. Can I take wisdom? Through life experiences, what's a, we have to earn wisdom, right? And so there may be, there, there's something here with wisdom. And this is just a, a speculation. But why did God tell him, do not take of something that can make you wise? 
He was giving them a choice. And you're absolutely right. Uh, but I think sometimes we, we, we focus on the disobeying the command and not looking at what the command entitled. There is some significance here. And I don't have the answer to what the significance is. Uh, but as Bev was saying, there is something to God's commands. And we're going to see uh, there are um, con- consequences uh, when man does not follow the commands of God. Jim. Yeah. And so Jim's comment was uh, that you can be taught wisdom. If you look at the way Jesus uh, taught and his use of the, the scriptures, he's able to teach wisdom and how to apply it. Um, but I think, uh, to, I, I'm not disagreeing, um, but we can all know what we need to do. Um, but do we always follow it? Uh, until we, we, we fall down and we scuff our knees, and then all of a sudden we're like, okay, that's why it's in place. And that's where the wisdom comes in. Like Jim was talking, that Christ was able to, there's a big chasm sometimes between knowledge and wisdom. A big chasm. Um, and unfortunately, there's sometimes we have to grab the rope and swing across that ch- chasm and we end up like wildy coyotes uh, and slam it into the wall. But like what uh, Jim was bringing up, Jesus at times will, will, will make that chasm really small or eliminate it altogether. And there's significance in what Jesus has done. All right. So before we get too much further, I think we probably need to read through the rest of chapter 3. Excuse me. And then we'll, we'll dig into it. So we, uh, we summarized, we left at the end of chapter 7. Um, they ate this fruit. I'll, we'll just go back and uh, pick up in verse 6 here of chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called God, or the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we'll stop right there. But what do we see so far in this story? This account. And, and don't get me wrong, when I say story, I'm not saying that it's, it's mythological. It's just an account. Um, and I, I fully, fully believe that this is a historical account. What do we see here? The woman took of the fruit, the woman and all of a sudden their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. And what was the conclusion they came to? We're naked. So then what did they do? What's the first man-made thing we see? Clothes. And they covered themselves. They covered their nakedness. And then there's something significant happen. The next thing we see is what? Fear. Fear of what? Fear of God. How do we know that there is fear of God here? They hid themselves. And specifically, they hid themselves from what? In verse 8, what does it say? Yeah. They hid from the presence of God. So, hypothetical question. Man and woman disobeyed God's command 
Uh, when we see that we disobey God's command, what's another word we could use for that? Sin. Man and woman sinned. And then we immediately see that they hid from the presence of God. What would have happened had the man and the woman gone into the presence of God with sin? It's, they can't, right? From a, from a theological standpoint, we understand that God cannot associate with sin. He can talk, he can vocally communicate, but they are not in the presence of God any longer. What would have happened? Where else did we see the presence of God throughout Israelite culture? The Holy of Holies. What happens if the, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies in a sinful state? Dead. So you see the significance of what Adam and Eve were able to do. They had so much significance. They were able to be in God's presence until what? Like Bev pointed out earlier, until they made a choice. And that choice eliminated them from the presence of God. The only other conversations we see or, or, or throughout the interaction between the, the man and God is all done vocally. And we'll see that throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that, that God will communicate vocally, but they hid themselves from the presence of God. They hid themselves from the presence of God. What was God's response? He knew. Who told you you were naked? Wait, wait, wait. Did you eat of the tree? So God knew that something was wrong. God knew something was wrong. And so then uh, the man responds. And how does he respond? He blames, right? There are four things that man needs in life. We need food. We need water. We need air. And what's the fourth? We need someone to blame, right? Those are the four things that we need to survive this life. So the man blames who? And what does he specifically say about this woman? The woman that you gave me. So the man, Don says the audacity here, by saying the woman that you gave me, who is he blaming for this? He's blaming God. Because you gave me this woman, guess whose fault this is? It's not me. This is all on you. So then the, the, the scene shifts to the woman. The woman says, what is this that, or the Lord says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And what is her response? She blames the serpent. All right, so this is interesting. We see that God initially talked to, who, who was the first one he talked to? He talked to the man, and then who did he talk to? He talked to the woman, and then who did he talk to? The serpent. So we're going to see that here, um, and pay attention to, to the, the next section, this poem, uh, and how uh, the, the curses are doled out. Who do you think the first one is to be cursed? God spoke to the man first. Is he the first one that the curse is going to be doled out to? No, it's going to go the other direction. He's going to start with the serpent, then he's going to go to the woman, and he's going to go to the man. But we're going to see something interesting here as we go to the man. Any comments before we jump in to this uh, verse 14? The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. 
And to Adam, he said, this is Adam. It's the same word that Adama that we looked at last week, but there's no article associated with it. So this is is shown that he's talking not to the man. He's talking to Adam here. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. So we'll look at these briefly. What was the, the first curse doled out? He cursed who? He cursed the serpent. And what specifically did he say to the serpent here? He's going to crawl on his belly. Who is this guy? And what's that thingy on his head? A a serpent, a snake. Um, We see it throughout a lot of pictures. This is so prominent in Egyptian culture that even this guy, had a snake on his head, right? It's no, it's going to be prominent when Yul Brenner busts it out. Uh, but there's this snake on the head, and the snake was called a uraeus. And the uraeus was this cobra in an attack position. Um, it's an ancient Egyptian symbol of a reared snake, a symbol worn on the forehead that became a sign of Pharaoh's sovereignty. So we talked a little bit last week on why did God use a serpent to describe this interaction? Why did God choose a serpent to show how how Satan, uh, as we see from the New Testament, interacted with Adam and Eve? We talked last week that they would have been very familiar with Egyptian culture because when Moses is writing this, they had just left where? Egypt. And that the snake, the serpent, was very focused in on uh, the Egyptian religion. The, the 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 pharaoh, excuse me, Uh, gained his position because of the snake. The snake showed that the Pharaoh was in control. So the curse that God put on the serpent, one, with all these curses, it shows that who is in charge? God. But in addition, uh, I I grew up understanding that this curse um, means that at some point in time, the serpent had four legs, uh, and that the, the four legs were gone, and now the serpent moves around on its belly. And that could be what happens here. But another way to maybe look at this is what position is that snake in on Pharaoh's headdress? It's reared up. It's in attack position. God curses that snake to do what? Crawl on its belly. You will no longer be in an attack situation. You will now be playing defense to the point where you're eating dust. And so while that this curse may be uh, that the serpent had four legs and was walking around, it could also be something much less dynamic, if that makes sense. Uh, because the, the, the whole point of this is that God is, is showing his authority, or a point of this, excuse me, that God is showing his authority over paganism. He's showing his power, his, de- er, his, his ability to reign over the Egyptian gods. Because Israelite in the garden, I'll get to you in a minute, sorry. Israelite in the garden, they were struggling with wanting to go back to Egypt, right? And throughout uh, the, the plagues of the Exodus plagues, how many were Pharaoh's magicians able to replicate? Yeah, they were able to do the snake, the blood in the river. Um, they, they were able to replicate some. I probably should have looked at that answer before I asked the question. <laughs> but the, we'll, we'll move on and circle back to that in a little bit. They were able to replicate some. So the, the, they were able to show that they had some power. But God here is showing that he has all the authority. 
He has all the authority. And whether that is changing the morphology of this animal or merely cursing it out to show his power over paganism, God is exerting his authority. Yes, sir, Mr. Gene. Yeah, and so there, there's some, some interesting thought. Gene's question is, how did the serpent come about? One, we know that God created him. Um, God created all the animals. Um, and we, we have no, as if we read this from an Old Testament perspective, we have no reason to think that this is anything besides a serpent. Uh, so we know that God created this serpent. But throughout chapter 1, there is significance. Uh, God spells out on what he creates, uh, specifically like the great sea creatures, uh, which would have been great sea serpents. And so there's some association with uh, snakes and sea serpents with uh, what they, they term chaos creatures, uh, where they're kind of, uh, through that culture, from my understanding, the view that they are amoral kind of mischief makers, um, that they just kind of flirt on the line um, on being, uh, they're not bad, they're not good, they just make mischief, is the way that the culture would have viewed it. Am I answering your question or am I just dancing around it? Okay, the, the point is that, that God made this serpent. Uh, and we don't know why the serpent acted the way he did. He was just asking a question. Yeah, we, we see through the New Testament, uh, looking back, that is Satan. And the way that Satan works, I think a comment was made a couple weeks ago that Satan is the father of lies. As Marty mentioned out here, this is a lie that he tells Eve. Uh, we, we see looking back that this is Satan. Um, and... and but if we were to read this from an Israelite perspective, it's just the serpent. Does that make sense? I'm trying to dance two worlds here on how we're looking at this. All right. Yeah, and Bev makes a comment that the Israelites were a lot smarter than sometimes we give them credit for. Uh, and they had a ton of knowledge themselves. Um, and that's what we have a generational arrogance sometimes as we look back and think through things. Um, just on a quick tangent, I know I'm running out of time. Um, if you think that we are super smart with the way that we come up with our inventions, Google um, how piano keys work and when that was all made because it's just absolutely amazing the amount of engineering that they went in, uh, put together back then to make pianos play. All right, so we saw the, the curse from the snake. He, he specifically curses the serpent. Now he comes out and he doesn't use the word curse with the woman, but what does he do with the woman? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So we see an aspect of pain with childbearing. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so we see that he doesn't introduce pain at childbirth. What is the word used to describe it? He multiplies the pain associated with childbirth. Uh, and I don't understand if this is a, a, a physiological pain or if there's something else associated with there. But regardless, God chose that as, as the curse to this woman. So prior to the fall, I think that we have reason to believe that there would have been some pain associated with childbirth. But now that pain has been greatly multiplied. And then it also says that her desire shall be towards her husband and he shall rule over you. The man was to rule over creation. The man was to rule over creation. And then God saw that he needed help with that. He brought forth a woman, and they were equals. And now we see that, okay, now there's also the man will have authority over you. And that doesn't mean authority um, like we see it today. It's just sitting back, and, and I don't know how to describe it the best way, uh, but the final say, if you will, Don. Yeah, and, and this is... Uh, and, 
this, this model is also called upon by Jesus and by Paul going all the way back to the beginning um, to, to show that there is something here. Um, it's also uh, psychologists, I think psychologists, um, will discuss the way that women seek husbands and kind of use this in the same way because uh, women will generally go to or, or be attracted to men that are um, higher up on the socioeconomic scale, scale. Um, that men will be okay. This is a large generalization, large generalization, so it may not apply. Uh, generally, men could care less um, if she comes from um, a poor background with no motivation in the workplace. Um, but generally speaking, women will want a man that has some motivation to work uh, and have a little bit higher socioeconomic scale. Um, does that make sense? They, they, they want a man that's, again, large generalities. They want a man that is um, seeking to improve himself, to uh, hit yourself onto. Bev. Yeah, so Bev brings up that Paul calls on the creation order to show um, the, the role of women. Um, and this is also something that, that Peter, or excuse me, Paul discusses in Ephesians, and he likens it to what? Man is to, to rule over his wife just as, what's the, the illustration he uses? Christ over the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. And so when man rules over his wife, that means he is to what? He's to die for his wife. And, and, and as, as much as I beg Megan, I'm still not able to come home with her holding a pond frond uh, and breezing uh, over me and feeding me grapes while I sit in my lazy boy. It hasn't happened yet. Um, but I also haven't died for her, so I, I don't know. This, this is not a, a kingly ruling. Um, that there's, just shows that interaction. Yeah, and, and so Jim brings up that that doesn't appear to the way that it was originally put out. But because of the way that things transpired with the temptation and falling into the temptation and the sin, this is what God put in place. Eve's or Adam's first response was what? Blame. So Adam, and we also see that, that Adam was the one that was told the command. The serpent went to Eve. Eve knew of the command, and we talked a little bit last week, that she also replayed a little bit more than God's command. But who told Eve the command? We don't know, but it was most likely Adam. Or a thought is it that it was Adam. But in the way that Adam conveyed God's command, uh, he did it in a way that it didn't quite set for Eve. But then we also see the blame. And so there was failure across the board. Uh, Adam failed in his role as a leader. Eve failed in his role uh, as a leader uh, as well. Um, and to Jim's point, uh, this is a, a result of that failure. He did nothing. He did nothing. And there's failure across the board. Yeah, the serpent. We don't, we don't see that, that back and forth, but the serpent just kind of said, yeah, okay, I did that. Because what was the serpent's focus? God had put order into the system. And what did the serpent want to do? Blow it all up. All right, so we saw that, that God specifically cursed the serpent. We see that God uh, increases um, some issues or some pain with the woman what does God curse when it comes to the man? He curses the ground. Why does God curse the ground instead of cursing the man? He commanded man to work the ground. And John brings up this point. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 1, or chapter 2, verse 5, excuse me, at that period of time, there was no man to work the ground. What is the curse here? Now you're going to work the ground. And, and pay attention to this. In pain you shall eat of it. Eat of what? 
eat of the ground. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat of the plants of what? The field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat its bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man's punishment was he's going to have to work for his food. And guess what that ground has done? That ground has now been cursed so that you have to work for it. He had everything there. He was able to eat of the tree, uh, of all the trees. He could just walk around and pluck fruit off the trees. But now what does he have to do? He has to work for it. And so we see the end, after the end of the curse, it goes back to the beginning of chapter 2. To show that there was non-order, there was chaos. Man invited, uh, God invited man in to uh, help prevent or to bring order to it, man failed in his task, and now what do we see? Chaos. That man now has to work because he was unable to meet the requirements of God. What were the requirements of God? Eat of all the trees except one. And man failed in that. So we, we, we see, I'm going to try to tie this up a little bit, uh, and we'll finish out the chapter. Um, but we see that, that Adam and Eve were, uh, in some form or fashion, um, God's, man's representatives to live in the presence of God. What did they need to do to maintain the ability to be in God's presence? They needed to obey the commands. What did they do? They failed to keep the commands of God, and as a result, they were, or they removed themselves, we see, from God's presence. Now, the Bible doesn't make this connection. Um, look at Israel for a minute. Israel was chosen nation that was told to do what? Keep the commands of God. And if you keep my commands, what will be with you in the tabernacle and the temple? God's presence. But Israel was not able to keep the commands of God. So what happened? Where's the Ark of the Covenant today? So Adam was tasked with keeping the commands of God, and if he did so, he could maintain being in the presence of God. Israel was tasked with keeping the commands of God, and if they did that, they could maintain the presence of God. But what happened? Adam failed, Israel failed. And then this other guy comes on the scene, Jesus. And what does Jesus task us to do? If you love me, you will keep my commands. But then Jesus went a step further our priestly Adam, Adam as our priest, failed. The Levites as our priest failed. But Jesus comes in as our priest, and what did he do? He, 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 did, he, he offered the sacrifice for himself, and now what Marty brings up is we are now priests. And where is God? After Christ died, what happened to the veil at the tabernacle or the veil of the temple? The veil that separated God's presence from man, what happened to it? It was torn in two because of when? At, at what point? At the death of Jesus. And now if we look through, we are now stones, holy stones, because we are what? God's temple. What is the significance about the temple? That's where God's presence is. We all now are priests. We all now work to keep a holy temple. And that temple is what? Our bodies, right? And so now we are priests with a mission to, to work and keep our bodies because within our bodies there is the presence of God. Isn't this cool? Um, 
Paul discusses this briefly. I, I didn't get a chance to look at it. Paul discusses this briefly in Romans 5, um, where he, he shows, uh, he brings up a point, uh, and a lot of times there, there was some conversation on um, if Adam was the first man or just chosen among the first men. Um, and we, we see in Romans 5 that through one man, enter, sin entered the world, and through sin, death, which we'll look at a little bit more next week. For some reason, I always run out of time. Um, but we'll look at uh, Romans 5 discusses justification and how we're not, uh, un, the law is unable to justify us. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks on the, the mortal man, uh, the first man being Adam uh, and his body being of dust, being of mortality, but the second man being of Christ, the second body being a heavenly body, one of life, uh, talking about the significance of our mortal resurrection. Um, but as I see, we're out of time. The kids are coming in. Next week we'll discuss, or two weeks we'll discuss uh, a little bit about the significance of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden uh, and then dig into Cain. Uh, but if there uh, is nothing further, we'll have a quick prayer and then we'll be uh, dismissed our worship time, if you bow with me. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for what Jesus has done for us, that he is our priest, Lord, uh, and that we can now have uh, your presence within us and have access to you through Jesus, God. Uh, we uh, love you in this prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless. Thank you.